Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald Scotland, Wednesday 19th of May 2021. Child poverty rises in every Scottish local authority over the last six years, with one topping the list. By Martin Williams, Senior News Reporter. Child poverty has risen in every Scottish local authority over the past six years, according to new research. Campaigners say the new data shows the scale of the challenge faced by UK, Scottish and local government if commitments to end child poverty in Scotland are to be met. The research by Loughborough University on behalf of the End Child Poverty Coalition shows that, even before the pandemic, levels of child poverty in Scotland ranged from nearly one in six children in the Shetland Islands and East Renfrewshire to nearly one in three in Glasgow once housing costs are taken into account. Glasgow, 5.1%, saw the biggest percentage point rise in child poverty. Renfrewshire had 3.88% increase. The smallest increase was in East Renfrewshire, 0.8%, Aberdeenshire, 1%. The Child Poverty Scotland Act, passed unanimously by the last Parliament, requires the new Scottish Government to ensure fewer than 18% of children are living in poverty by 2023-24, on course to less than 10% by 2030. Official figures show that 26% of children in Scotland were in poverty before COVID-19 struck in 2019-20, up from 23% in 2018-19 and 24% in 2017-18. This is well above the level set out in the Child Poverty Act 2017, which sets mandatory targets of reducing child poverty to 18% by 2024 and 10% by 2030. Of children who were living in poverty, more than two-thirds, 68%, were in families where at least one adult was working. Campaigners in Scotland say there can be no room for complacency if statutory child poverty targets, agreed by all the Holyrood parties, are to be met and have called for urgent action at every level of government. End child poverty campaigners are urging that local powers including over economic development, housing and financial support, are all used to maximise family incomes and reduce the costs parents face. They say the impact of COVID-19 on women's employment in particular is now pushing many women and their children into greater poverty. Speaking on behalf of members of End Child Poverty, John Dickey, Director of the Child Poverty Action Group in Scotland, said Solid foundations have been laid in Scotland for future progress on child poverty, not least the introduction of the Scottish Child Payment and an increasing focus on action at local level. But this new data is a stark reminder that child poverty was still rising in every part of Scotland even before the pandemic struck.
The challenge now is for government at all levels to use every power they have to boost family incomes and reduce the costs that struggling parents face. The new Scottish Parliament must act on election promises and make tackling child poverty its top priority. The cross-party commitment to at least doubling the Scottish child payment needs to be implemented as a matter of utmost urgency in order to help meet the 2023-24 targets. But child poverty also needs to be a priority at local level. Local powers, including over-economic development, housing and welfare, must be used to maximum effect to ensure that all families have a disposable income fit for giving children a decent start in life. The End Child Poverty Coalition is also calling on the UK government to recognise the scale of the problem and its impact on children's lives. They say a credible UK government plan is needed to end child poverty across the UK, including a commitment to increase UK child benefits. Given the extent to which families are already struggling, the £20 per week cut to universal credit planned in October should also be revoked, they say, with the support also extended to those still receiving financial assistance from the old benefit system, referred to as legacy benefits, before they are switched to universal credit. Mr Dickey added, The figures speak for themselves. The situation for children couldn't be starker. We all want to live in a society where children are supported to be the best they can be, but the reality is very different for too many. The UK government can be in no doubt about the challenge it faces if it's serious about levelling up parts of the country's hardest hit by poverty. After the year we've all had, they owe it to our children to come up with a plan to tackle child poverty that includes a boost to children's benefits. And they need to scrap plans to cut universal credit given parents and children are having a tough enough time as it is. A Scottish government spokesman said, while child poverty levels remain lower than in England and Wales, we are not complacent and are doing all that we can to tackle and reduce child poverty in Scotland. We are providing support worth about £5,000 by the time a child turns six through the Best Start Grant, Best Start Foods and Scottish Child Payment. This payment, worth £40 every four weeks, is already reaching thousands of families on low incomes. We are working to deliver it to all eligible children under 16 by the end of 2022 and doubling the value of the payment by the end of this parliamentary term. The 2021-22 Scottish Budget commits further investments to tackle child poverty, including £100 million to support struggling families through the new pandemic support payments and £49.75 million for expanded free school meal support. These statistics highlight that, even before the pandemic began, the challenge of negotiating the UK's welfare system has left many people in desperate need of help. The UK government must act now to match our action and commit to making permanent the £20 uplift to universal credit and extend this to people on other benefits. This article was written by Martin Williams. The Herald Scotland Wednesday, 19th of May, 2021. Nicholas Sturgeon, Cabinet Reshuffle as Fiona Hislop and Fergus Ewing Leave Government by Alistair Grant, Political Correspondent.
Nicola Sturgeon has announced two of her longest-serving ministers will step down ahead of the announcement of her new cabinet and junior ministerial lineup. The first minister said Fiona Hislop and Fergus Ewing, who have both been part of the ministerial team since 2007, will leave government. It comes after John Swinney was removed as Education Secretary and appointed to a new role as Scotland's Cabinet Secretary for Covid recovery. The latest move means a number of big roles are now empty, setting the scene for Miss Sturgeon's biggest ever reshuffle. The First Minister said, I want to pay tribute to the work of both Fiona Hislop and Fergus Ewing and to thank them for their unstinting public service over many years. Fiona has served in Cabinet since 2007, firstly as Education Secretary, then as Culture and External Affairs Secretary, before taking on the Economy and Fair Work portfolio. Her tenure in the External Affairs Brief saw Fiona oversee the expansion of the Scottish Government's international footprint, giving our country a higher profile than it has ever had before on the global stage, and that is a legacy which she can and should be justly proud of. Fergus has also been part of the ministerial team since 2007 and has brought diligence and endeavour to all of the jobs he has held. In particular, he has worked tirelessly with and on behalf of Scotland's rural sector over the past five years since the Brexit vote, fighting their corner at every turn. Fergus has been a champion for Scotland's farmers and crofters during one of the most difficult and challenging and uncertain periods our agricultural sector has ever faced. And he has the gratitude of many in the industry for his efforts to protect their interests. I want to offer my sincere thanks to Fiona and Fergus for their service and wish them well as they continue to serve their constituents in the new Parliament. This article was written by Alistair Grant. Recorded from the Herald on the 19th of May 2021. From the Sports section. Aberdeen reject... Lewis Ferguson transfer request after insulting bid from EPL side by Joshua Barry. Aberdeen midfielder Lewis Ferguson has had a transfer request knocked back by the club. The 21-year-old's request was immediately rejected by Aberdeen following an insulting offer from an English Premier League club for the player. Ferguson, who has been linked with the EPL outfit Watford, joined the Dons from Hamilton in 2018. He was a bright spark in an otherwise disappointing season for Aberdeen last campaign, scoring nine goals and contributing two assists. The club is greatly disappointed to have received a written transfer request from midfielder Lewis Ferguson today. This request was rejected immediately. More details to follow. Aberdeen FC at Aberdeen FC, May 19th, 2021. In a statement, Aberdeen said, Aberdeen Football Club is greatly disappointed to have received a written transfer request from midfielder Lewis Ferguson today. This request made after the club dismissed what can only be described as an insulting offer from an English Premier League club for one of Scotland's most talented young midfield players was rejected immediately. The club holds Lewis in the highest regard. Having made a significant investment to both acquire and develop Lewis, he has a bright future ahead of him as an integral part of Stephen Glass's squad. That article was by Joshua Barry. Recorded from the Herald on the 19th of May 2021. From the Sports section. British and Irish Lions confirm Murrayfield will host 16,500 fans 
for Japan clash after a consultation with Scottish Government by Aidan Smith. The British and Irish Lions have confirmed the Vodafone Lions 1888 Cup match against Japan at Murrayfield Stadium will host 16,500 fans. The clash is set to take place on Saturday 26th of June, kick-off 3pm, ahead of 2021 Castle Lager Lions series in South Africa. Murrayfield will host the partial capacity crowd following consultation with the Scottish Government and the application of agreed social distancing criteria to ensure fans can attend safely. It will be the first time supporters will be able to attend the home of Scottish Rugby to watch an international match since March 2020. Other public health agencies, emergency services and transport providers are collaborating to stage the landmark event. We're absolutely delighted to be able to confirm today's news, said Lions Managing Director Ben Cavalry. It will be brilliant to see a passionate crowd back at Murrayfield for what promises to be a superb game of rugby before we embark on the tour to South Africa. I'm sure it will give the entire touring party an enormous boost to play this fixture in front of Lions fans. We are very grateful to the Scottish Government for its commitment and support to ensure this fixture would could, would be seen by a live audience. The game against the 2019 Rugby World Cup quarter-finalists will be shown live and exclusively on Channel 4 and broadcast on TalkSport. This is an important first step to bring fans back to the BT Murrayfield Stadium and a return to normality, commented Scottish Rugby Chief Executive Mark Dodson. Through the positive working relationship we have developed with both Scottish Government and key local partners, we are confident we will offer a safe environment for every supporter and look forward to playing our part in hosting this unique sporting occasion and welcoming rugby fans back to Edinburgh. I'd like to thank everyone at Scottish Rugby who has contributed to enabling a live crowd to enjoy this match at BT Murrayfield and have no doubt it will be a special day for all involved. The Scottish Government's National Clinical Director, Professor Jason Leach, said, As a flagship event of international significance, this match has been carefully considered by the Scottish Government. The stadium capacity has been agreed following public health advice, in principle by ministers, but will be kept under review, with all partners continuing to monitor the status of the pandemic and the run-up to the match to ensure fans can attend safely. This is the same process used to set up the capacity for the Euros at Hamden and for other internationally significant events during the summer. Whilst all those in the stadium should of course enjoy the game, they should do so safely. The virus is still out there. Free, fast and regular testing for people who do not have COVID-19 symptoms is available to everyone in Scotland. Please take up that offer and do not attend if the result is positive or you have any symptoms whatsoever. Stick to your allotted arrival and departure time, follow physical distancing rules, and wear a mask at all times, other than when you're eating or drinking. By following these rules, you will help us beat this virus and ensure many more people can enjoy the thrill of live events in the future. Owing to the reduced capacity following the application of agreed social distancing measures within the stadium, a number of ticket holders will, unfortunately, not be permitted to attend and will be refunded. Tickets will be allocated in line with government advice and the ticketing terms and conditions. All ticket holders will be contacted by Friday 28th of May to advise if they have been successful in gaining access to the event. Our article was by Aidan Smith.
from the Herald Scotland dated Wednesday 19th May 2021 from the Voices section. Can Glasgow City Centre really become a place to raise a family? An article by Rosemary Goring, literary editor and columnist. For many years I had a flat in Glasgow's Merchant City, a couple of streets from George Square. I used to fall asleep to the companionable sound of bartenders tipping empty bottles into recycling bins beneath our windows. A couple of hours later I'd be woken by a sozzled opera singer wending his way home along Ingram Street and treating us to arias from Verdi and Puccini. I'd never lived anywhere like it and even though I am now happily ensconced in the country I miss the buzz and beauty of Glasgow's majestic city centre. Yet there are some things I don't pine for. Not long after I arrived, an independent grocer set up business, offering all the fruit, veg and granary loaves you'd ever need. Sadly, he didn't last long, driven out by the proliferation of micro-supermarkets. Soon it became harder to find a bag of red lentils than a magnum of champagne or a state-of-the-art sound system. Children were as rare as ospreys, You'd hear the purring of Alexis as it idled at the lights and at weekends the squealing of revellers tottering from club to club. But hardly ever did I see, let alone hear, a youngster. On our floor there were more French pugs than prams. The centre of Glasgow, with its high-end shops, restaurants, bars and penthouse flats, prided itself on its glamour. Yet by the time we left, swathes of it had been turned into soulless student land. This ever-shifting community mirrored the wider picture. People living in self-contained pods, barely connecting with anyone else. I never knew the names of our next-door neighbours. I couldn't even have picked them out in an identity parade. As became increasingly apparent, you might have every extravagance money can buy within a five-minute walk, but painfully absent was a sense of community. The pandemic has highlighted a long-brewing problem. When shops and cafes shutters come down, students flee and the elderly retreat indoors. The centre becomes ghostly, a neighbourhood without a pulse. This unhealthy trend has not gone unnoticed. In recognition of the people-shaped hole at its heart, Glasgow Council has devised a long-term plan to revivify the centre. Its Strategic Development Framework, SDF, sets out enlightened proposals aimed at regenerating six areas of the city, including what you might call the dead centre. For this zone, as with others, the aim is to transform it into a pedestrian-friendly and family-oriented destination for day trips. At the same time, the council wants to repopulate it, thereby making the area more appealing to residents who want to live there fully rather than treat their flat as a bunkhouse. Along with initiatives to promote walking and cycling and to reconnect the centre with surrounding districts, the hope is that by 2050 its population will have doubled. No one will miss the irony of trying to attract families back to an area that was once renowned for some of the highest density housing in Europe. The demolition of overcrowded slums in the post-war era was seen as tackling disease and deprivation. Instead, the solution, tower blocks and housing schemes pushed to the outskirts, 
created arguably even worse problems. Meanwhile, the centre languished. It was this sort of short-sighted urban planning, which messed with people's lives, that the writer Jane Jacobs tore into. Her classic book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, published in 1961, but as fresh as today's newspaper, was a salvo against dehumanising architecture and development. When it came out, it was immediately understood, she said, by what she calls foot people, residents who either prefer to get around on foot or wish they could ditch their car. Jacob started out as a newspaper reporter, although she married an architect who, she wrote, taught her what she needed to become an architectural writer. That her views became so influential, despite her having no authority other than a clear mind and good taste, points to the obvious truth. Ordinary people instinctively know what makes a city tick, what works and what is doomed from the start. You don't need a degree in urban planning to see that concrete wastelands, featureless parks or pigeonhole flats in the sky are a recipe for misery. Or that well-designed green spaces allowing people to breathe completely change the mood and potential of a district. What Scotland needs right now is our own Jane Jacobs to articulate the city dweller's view. The novelist John Cheever understood how hard it could be to pinpoint the problem. In the Wapshot Chronicle, he describes a fictional scene. North of the park, you come into a neighbourhood that seems blighted. Not persecuted, but only unpopular, as if it suffered acne or bad breath. And it has a bad complexion. Colourless and seamed and missing a feature here and there. Most of us who know Glasgow, indeed almost any city in the world, could point to places as perfectly fixed. Now, it seems, Glasgow's leaders are intent on fixing the problems previous generations of developers helped create. I wish them well, but unfortunately there are factors to be considered which are beyond the control of any planner. The sight of the Rangers mob overwhelming George Square last weekend was disturbing on so many levels, it's hard to know where to begin. But in terms of attracting long-term residents to the centre, it highlights one reason why people feel anxious about raising a family here. Quite simply, it does not always feel safe. Drastically reducing traffic, planting leafy walkways or creating pedestrian precincts are all admirable. But if mobs can turn the place into a temporary war zone in an instant, its appeal evaporates. Quite how to address this is for others to consider. But if Glasgow City Centre's transformation is to succeed, then solutions to such wildcat problems must be factored into its vision. It sounds daunting, but it is not necessarily an impossible task. Jane Jacobs believes that lively, diverse, intense cities contain the seeds of their own regeneration, with energy enough to carry over for problems and needs outside themselves. I'm no expert, but that sounds like Glasgow to me. This article is by Rosemary Goring. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 19th of May 2021. Arts and Entertainments. 
Two Gripping Novels in a History of Working Women by Kirsten Innes, Helen McCarthy and Alan Gillespie. Paperback Reviews by Alistair Mabbott. Scabby Queen, Kirsten Innes, Fourth Estate, £8.99. A few days before her 51st birthday, folk singer and political activist Cleo Campbell is found dead from an overdose. Having grown up in a highland mining town, the politicised singer famously turned a top-of-the-pops appearance into a poll tax protest, setting her on a path of tireless activism which touched and inspired countless people. Each of Innes's multiple narrators has their own version of who she was, and from their memories a picture gradually takes shape of a complex woman for whom the personal and political were inextricably entwined. Cleo's suicide casts a bittersweet pall over what follows as Innes traverses the political history of the last four decades, examining women's roles in music and activism. But what makes it ultimately so moving is watching these disparate memories of Cleo coalesce into a flawed but rich character who takes on a life of her own and leaves an indelible impression. Double Lives, Helen McCarthy, Bloomsbury, £12.99. In Victorian times, working women were regarded as an oddity, even a social problem, despite numbering in the millions. Stretching from 1840 to the present day, McCarthy's social history of women, particularly mothers, in the workplace examines the persistence of the Victorian idealisation of motherhood and policies intended to keep women dependent on their husbands. Even at times when they were well represented in the labour market, such as during the war and in the 1950s consumer boom, women's work was considered temporary, justifying low wages. And today, while it may no longer be acceptable to say that women must choose between a family and a career, the world of work is still arranged with men in mind. McCarthy has drawn from surveys, reports and fiction, but the most important source for this weighty authoritative tome has been the voices of working women themselves, a multiplicity of voices which can't be reduced to simple archetypes. The Mash House, Alan Gillespie, Unbound, £9.99 There's only one road in and out, the phone signal is unreliable and everyone has secrets. In the remote highland village of Colrothes, no one knows who they can trust. Gillespie's whiskey-centric novel keeps a close eye on numerous characters, from the distillery owner whose sideline is distributing drugs alongside whiskey to the young couple who have just moved into the area, to the 16-year-old girl who is desperate to escape it and her dying grandfather who hasn't long to live. When the distillery owner's son disappears, an anonymous American investor tries to muscle in on his business and the villagers' secrets begin to unspool. With such a varied cast, there are always shafts of light to balance the oppressive gloom, like the sweet relationship between teenager Jessie and her grandfather. But the Mash House is a smart dissection of the darkness at the heart of an isolated community, a suspenseful and unsettling read. By Alistair Mabbott, Herald Scotland, recorded on Wednesday 19th of May 2021. Arts and Entertainments We Are Lady Parts, Channel 4's new music comedy series. By Susan Swarbrick, Calmest and senior features writer. What's the story? We are Lady Parts. I beg your pardon? It's a new Channel 4 six-part music comedy series centering on an all-female Muslim punk band as they search for a lead guitarist and aim to land a proper gig. Tell me more. Geeky microbiology PhD student Amina Hussein is pulled into the orbit of Syrah, the fierce and fearless front woman of Lady Parts. Syrah sees something special in Amina, 
even if the band's wheeler-dealer manager and bassist are unconvinced. Amina isn't sure she's right fit either, until Syrah dangles a tantalising carrot, the promise of a date with the dishy brother of the band's drummer. Then what? As Amina gets swept up in this joyful, anarchic new world, she quickly finds herself at odds with her old straight-laced existence. The cast includes Anjana Vassan, Sarah Camila Impey, Lucy Shorthouse, Faith Amol, Juliette Motamid, and Aisha Hart. Anything else? The series is written, created and directed by Nida Manzur, who has worked in episodes of Doctor Who and comedy drama Enterprise. According to Manzur, she was frustrated by the stereotypical narratives about Muslim women in the media as oppressed victims, lacking agency and selfhood, and wanted to write something that better reflected the world that she knows. When can I watch? We Are Lady Parts begins on Channel 4, Thursday at 10pm. By Susan Swardrick. Recorded from the Herald on the 20th of May 2021. From the Sports Section. Aberdeen appoint new director of football who outlines investment plans and youth prospect development by Mark Hendry. Aberdeen's new director of football, Stephen Gunn, has outlined his plans for the club in developing young players and investing in the squad. Gunn has been working at Pataudry as their director of football operations, but the club have altered the role and put him in charge of overseeing their strategy under manager Stephen Glass. He takes over a variety of new roles, including working with the first team, women's team, recruitment and sports science. Though the club have confirmed they are looking to appoint a new head of recruitment in due time. Gunn Lowe has told supporters what they can expect to see from him in the position. We've been clear in outlining our football strategy and my role will be to ensure we're all custodians of that strategy. We're fortunate to have a hugely dedicated staff here and we all crave success. We're looking forward to next season and my role is to ensure we have the structure and resources in place to help meet the ambitions of Stephen Glass and his staff. A number of areas are critical in terms of what we want to achieve on the pitch. We want to be competitive, build a value in the squad that we can reinvest and continue to develop young talent. The Youth Academy will be critical to our success going forward. We need a core of homegrown talent in our team. That is something which Stephen has fully bought into. It was an important part of the recruitment process when searching for our new manager and it's something I will be looking to make sure we have going forward. Don's chairman Dave Cormack added, This is a critical role for the club when you think about the sheer quantity of people involved within the football business unit and Stephen will be responsible for all aspects of that. It's all encompassing. We take our duty of care to our people seriously and that will be a crucial element in our director of football remit. Russ has moved on and we thank him for everything he has done for the club. An important task for Stephen now is to fill the head of recruitment role. In this modern age, the use of technology, having a global outlook at player recruitment and taking advantage of collaborations such as our strategic partnership with Atlanta United will be fundamental. Stephen is an outstanding asset to the club and he will be dedicated to ensuring we have the correct infrastructure in place to achieve our ambitions on the pitch. That article was by Mark Hendry. Recorded from the Herald on the 20th of May 2021. From the sports section. Hearts chairman Anne Budge outlined summer transfer plans, discusses fan ownership and boardroom changes by Ian Cullen. Anne Budge insists she still expects Hearts to become fully fan owned this summer 
but has warned the momentous occasion will not give concerned supporters any more of a say in the running of the club. The Foundation of Hearts, FOH, are in the final stages of the localities of the deal, which has been delayed by the coronavirus pandemic. That will see them become the largest shareholder in the Gorgi outfit after repaying loans to Budge. In a wide-ranging statement to supporters, Budge has confirmed she has stepped back from the day-to-day operations at Tynecastle, with Chief Executive Andrew McKinley now fully in charge. The Jambos chairman also revealed philanthropist James Anderson, a long-term financial backer of Hearts, who also gifted over £3 million to support Scottish football at the height of the pandemic last summer, is to join the board on July 1st. Budge said, Hearts is incredibly fortunate to have James's continued support. The value of his business acumen and his advice in driving forward the long-term ambitions of the club cannot be overstated. Budge has come in for severe criticism in recent months, not helped by worrying team performances that came to a head with the embarrassing Scottish Cup loss to Brewer Rangers and some have seen the handover of ownership as the chance for major change behind the scenes at the club. However, the businesswoman, whose millions rescued the club from administration in 2014, has moved to temper fans' expectations. She said, We are facing a year of transition. We are on the cusp of becoming the largest fan-owned football club in the UK. What a magnificent achievement. We are working hard to complete everything associated with the legal transfer of majority ownership and barring any unexpected legal hiccups, the transfer will take place this summer. However, I want to issue a word of caution. It is apparent from recent communications and indeed headlines that there is still a lack of understanding among some supporters and indeed some football pundits regarding what this will mean for the day-to-day decision-making. In terms of operational decision-making, heart supporters will have no more rights than supporters of any other club. We all know that a club does not have to be fan-owned for supporters to make their views known. That will not change. The club must continue to be run and decisions must be taken by a professional board of directors, taking everything into account and in accordance with an agreed long-term strategy. If the shareholders are unhappy with the performance of the board, they will have the power to make that known at the AGM in terms of how votes are cast via the Foundation of Hearts. In every other sense, nothing will change. Bodge admits she still does not know when supporters will be led back in Tynecastle in any great numbers, has revealed Hearts expect operational income to be down £1 million on their already modest financial projections for the last season, but has promised a brighter future. On the pitch, with a busy summer of recruitment ahead, the Jambos will target younger signings and will piece together a smaller squad for their return to the Premiership. Anne Budge, who indicated some unnamed out-of-contract players have turned down new deals, has confessed manager Robbie Nielsen and the board no performances at times fell short of expectations. She added, Our principal objective for the 2020-2021 season was, of course, to achieve promotion back to the Premiership. We led the Championship from very early on and finished 12 points ahead of our closest rivals to win the title. It was never going to be easy, was not always pretty, and some performances were frustrating and disappointing. However, we achieved our main goal and Robbie, the coaching staff, the backroom staff and all the players deserve our huge thanks for getting us back to where we belong. That article was by Ian Collin. From the Herald Scotland, dated Thursday 20th May 2021. From the Voices section. We said we'd change the world after Covid. 
but nothing has changed and nothing will. An article by Neil McKay, writer at large. It's surely a symptom of our brief lifespans. Or perhaps the sick joke of a creator god, if you're religiously inclined. But humanity proves itself, time and again, to be incapable of thinking of the future. Of doing what's in our own best interests. We can't even build a better world for ourselves five years from now let alone do the hard work required to shape a future for our children full of so much more dignity and happiness than our own sorry present. Last year, all we talked about was how we could make society better and fairer after Covid. I, like thousands of journalists around the world, spent months interviewing economists, philosophers and political thinkers about what we could do to make that change. I wanted to know if it could really happen, could we dare to dream? Yes, it could happen, they said. All we needed was the will to try. Change the economic structure so it favours everyone, not just the rich. Reign in capitalism and make the markets fairer. Reorder taxation so it's more equitable. Green the economy to save the planet and create jobs. Recast the New Deal and the welfare state. Think of well-being of human health and happiness as important an indicator of success as GDP. It could all be done. It didn't require revolutions or new inventions. It just needed political will. But politicians only act when the people demand change. The future was in our hands if only we had the gumption to grasp it. Clearly, we let it all slip through our fingers. Covid is coming to a stuttering halt. Eventually, we'll find ourselves on the far shore of pandemic and realise nothing changed. We suffered all that loss, 3.4 million dead by today's count, and let the chance to change life pass us by. We don't need to look at humanity's worst traits for proof that nothing has changed. The Palestine-Israel conflict was burning long before I was born. It still burns. Covid and the lessons we could have learned from pandemic weren't going to bring peace to the Middle East. Northern Ireland still erupts in hate. Humans still genocide one another in little spots of evil throughout the world. Curing humanity of its innate taste for killing wasn't going to be achieved by Covid. When we talked of change last year, of Covid providing the impetus to reshape how we live, nobody meant utopia. All that was hopeful was finding a way to do things better, to make more people happier and safer. So it's in the little things, not the great horrors, that we find confirmation of our endemic failure. Was there ever a more telling metaphor for proof that nothing has changed? than the resignation of the nurse who helped save the life of Boris Johnson. Jenny McGee cared for the Prime Minister when he was gravely ill with Covid. She's now quit the NHS, disillusioned by the lack of respect for frontline staff. Do you remember when all of us clapped for the NHS? Was that a sick joke too, or just phony virtue signalled by an entire country? The climate continues to change threatening to do away with millions of British homes, we learned yesterday, 
as land becomes unfit for habitation beneath their foundations. We were going to green the world post-Covid, remember? We can't even find the will to create a sustainable energy system. Only some 40% of Scottish companies have taken any steps to decarbonise their business. The blame doesn't lie solely with them. It lies in the lap of politicians and by extension with us. Because it's not politicians who run the country, it's us. We elect them to manage our lives. We seem content with mismanagement on a grand and deadly scale. Child poverty is through the roof. It's risen in every Scottish local authority in the last six years. Change the world for the better. We're going backwards at a rate of knots. The bodies of dead migrants float in the Mediterranean while the British press obsess over which countries we can fly off to soon to sun ourselves. So much for our better post-Covid world. Today we're vaccinating kids in the West before we vaccinate the elderly in the developing world. Maybe that creator God, who incidentally I don't believe in, doesn't think we deserve a do-over. Like a symbol of last chance, a report was issued yesterday by the National Audit Office telling us that coronavirus exposed the divisions in society. The neglect of social care, the underfunding of local services. It was like a scream saying, I thought you knew this. I thought you said you cared. Once the pandemic ends, the elderly will still be treated without dignity. Services, which can change lives, will keep disappearing. But we'll all be able to go shopping again, drink in the pub, buy from Amazon and make the rich richer, while the poor get poorer. In Scotland, John Swinney is now the minister responsible for Covid recovery. Poor John Swinney. He's a decent guy, but Nicola Sturgeon keeps handing him cups of poison to drink. First, she gave him education in an administration which has no idea how to improve education. Now she gives him a portfolio of impossibility. Our status quo election in Scotland wasn't about Covid recovery, it was about the Constitution. Decent though the SNP is in comparison to many governments around the world, and most definitely when set against the casual cruelty of Westminster, the Scottish Cabinet has not offered us an agenda of change. It offers us an agenda of small token tweaks and business as usual. How can Swinney truly effect change after Covid if there's no real ideas on display to effect that change? In cosmic terms, our 70 plus years on this planet is like the lifespan of a mayfly to us. In the universe's eyes we're dead in an afternoon. It seems we also have the brains of a mayfly not smart enough to do anything but seek brief joy, where we can before we die, and leave the mess of the future to our unlucky kids. This article was by Neil McKay. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 20th of May 2021, Arts and Entertainments. Jupiter's Legacy, Frank Quitely on Netflix Success with Mark Miller, by Tamar Scotland, Digital Journalist. It's one of the most trending series on Netflix, attracting worldwide attention and dividing viewers. But superhero series Jupiter's Legacy comes from much more humble roots and much closer to home. It was the vision of two Scots, writer Mark Miller, 
brackets of kick-ass fame, close brackets, and artist Frank Quitely, back in 2013 with the buzzing ideas and meticulous artwork impressing thousands across the globe. Quitely, a talented and renowned comic book artist, grew up in Rutherglen and studied at Glasgow School of Art. His artwork from Jupiter's Legacy was exhibited in 2017 at the Kelvin Grove. But for an artist with such nuances, how would that translate when adapted to the screen? A lot of it is very close to the comic, but some is new, and the comic has been fleshed out in the TV show, both plot-wise and visually, quietly said. Given that this can be run for however many seasons it needs to, to tell the story, they can afford to go into a lot more depth in terms of plot and subplots. The costumes are very similar to the ones in the comic books, but in the comic books the older characters have simple, old-fashioned costumes. If they'd been translated directly for screen the way they looked in the comic, they would have looked old-fashioned in a way that we would have recognised as out of date. Whereas what they've done is that they've taken the basic design and added layers of subtle detail, and I feel that their version of the costumes was better suited for TV than what I had put in the comic. When he originally started to work with Miller on the comic book, it was planned to be developed into a trilogy of films. However, the writer eventually decided it would be best suited as a TV show. Quietly has since become renowned across the work for his artwork and many of his fans in Scotland were able to enjoy an exhibition dedicated to him in 2017. Comics expert and professor of text and image studies at the University of Glasgow, Lawrence Grove, worked alongside Quietly to create the exhibition and praised his incredible success. He said, brackets, Quietly, close brackets, became renowned for his meticulous artwork but with nuances. There will always be little jokes there if you look in the background of his artwork. He was incredible to work with. He had all these buzzing ideas and he just got the connection between the artworks and since then he and I have been invited to give talks worldwide. The next project Lawrence will be working on with Quietly, which is called Prehistory to Pre-Future, will be in the south of France. The project aims to compare cave art and the way humans f first expressed narrative to Frank Quietly's art pieces by Tamar Scotland. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 20th of May 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Linda Cracknell weaves together centuries of stories from a Perthshire woolen mill by Nick Major. The Other Side of Stone. Linda Cracknell. Taproot Press. £14.99. Review by Nick Major. Once upon a time, farmers could pay their rent with the profits from wool sales. Nowadays, unless you own a herd of top-quality merino sheep, wool and profit are rarely heard in the same sentence, shearing done solely for animal welfare purposes. The collapse of the wool industry didn't just hit farmers. On the other side of stone, one of Linda Cracknell's characters, George, locks himself inside a Perthshire woolen mill. It's 1990 and the mill has closed down. He's determined to finish a last length of Glen Alder Tweed. But he knows there is something doomed about his enterprise. Worn threads of memory tugged at him. The frayed ends of rumours from early in the century that reminded him he wouldn't be the mill's first sacrifice. In Cracknell's short, fractured novel, no one seems to be having much fun. This is no nostalgic pain to a lost industry. The book is split into different stories, each focusing on an individual implicated in the mill's lifespan. One of the recurring characters is a raging suffragette whose husband becomes foreman in the 1910s. As a result, the two grow apart. She's dependent on his income, unable to fulfil her own dreams, wedded instead to his kitchen sink. Perth has a history of suffragism. Arabella Scott was subjected to what amounted to torture from the British state while on hunger strike in Perth prison. 
It's a story recounted in A.J. Close's novel A Petrol Scented Spring, a more detailed account of the Scottish suffragettes compared with the rather tired polemic here. The best story concerns James Knight, a descendant of the original mill owner who oversees the factory's final days. He moves to Zanzibar as an advisor to a cotton mill, but is quietly pushed out of office. He is forced to return to his parents, whom he thinks will be receiving a failure back into their house. It's a compelling portrait of a man whose allegiances to family and tradition are prey to harsh realities. In another story set in 2006, a man turns the abandoned mill building into a block of flats, only for his project to fail because of structural problems and mysterious forces to which only the reader is privy. These mysterious forces are present from the beginning. In the first story, a stonemason working in the construction of the mill in 1831 carves a glastig. In mythology, a malign green maiden, into the wall. She is a kind of protector of nature, the antithesis of industrialisation. Her presence seems to predetermine the bad juju that dogs the people of the mill. Her curse, if that's what it is, is only lifted in the final story, with the restoration of nature. Despite this pagan witchery, which does provide some cohesion, many of the stories feel unfinished, in need of a little fleshing out. There's nothing wrong with some loose ends in fiction, but this is a little too loose and too short. At least it's a novel problem. Most fiction is too long. Cracknell's approach of shoring up different voices against one another is a good narrational tactic, but to have a third-person narrator sometimes pop up creates a formal confusion. Who exactly is telling this story? Cracknell excels in her descriptions of place. She's past form in this regard, particularly in her travel book, Doubling Back. She can conjure up a scene with precision and acuity. Here is James imagining his Perthshire home. One of those dense still days when the tops of trees are bitten off by cloud and the sheep, stone walls and sky reflect only shades of white. It is her keen illuminating eye which lights up and saves this, in the end, underwhelming novel by Nick Major. The Herald, Friday the 21st of May 2021. News. Carmack's biggest customer calls for complete ferries overhaul. This article is by Brian Donnelly. Haulage companies that spend millions of pounds on Scotland's ferries each year have called for a complete overhaul of the system they say is stifling growth and heading for breaking point. Donald McLeod of Stornoway-based DR McLeod said his business is Calmac's biggest single customer and that the current dire situation is killing business and offers no backup and no resilience in the fleet. This is a government-run concern. If you ran your business like that, you would be out of business tomorrow, he said. It's shocking. In day two of a special series, the spotlight is turned on the businesses that have helped keep Scotland and Ireland supplied during the pandemic, the Holliers. Another operator, Neil Leslie, commercial director of Shetland-based Northwards, said up to 40% more resources are used on some trips and trailers may have to wait up to a week to get a return journey with existing pressures. And while tourism opening up and the renewables industry growing are welcome, it is set to exacerbate capacity issues. The Scottish Government, which owns Calmac and contracts Circo Northlink in the Northern Isles, said it is developing island connectivity, more broadly bringing together aviation, ferries and fixed links along with connecting and onward travel. 
Mr McLeod said the position is ridiculous. I've been doing this job for over 40 years now and I've never seen it as bad as it is now, he said. It's the worst it's ever been by some margin. I'm CalMac's largest customer. I give them £250,000 every month. CalMac operate the routes, Transport Scotland and the government in due course run CalMac. The taxpayer-funded Caledonian Maritime Assets Limited procures publicly owned CalMac ships on behalf of the Scottish Government. Mr McLeod said this structure is a flop. Northwards was formed in 2002 after a management buyout from P&O Scottish Ferries of its freight, haulage and maintenance operations and now operates out of depots in Shetland, Orkney, Aberdeen, Inverness, Crabster and Glasgow, spending around £5 million a year on ferries. Mr Leslie said a third ferry should be added to the North Fleet as renewables activity increases in the area. There are two daily passenger ferries a day and three to five freight ferries a week, said Mr Leslie. There could be a lot more than that. It could be so much better for industry in the islands. If you can't get good daily connections in both directions, you can't expect businesses to thrive or to grow. He said, we are getting a lot of freight moving here, which is fine. But again, that exacerbates what's going to happen on the ferries over the next two years. A spokesperson for CalMac said, planning and allocating spaces for commercial customers in advance has meant that CalMac is meeting the demand as it is presented for shipping at ports. A tailored combined timetable has been put in place to allow shellfish to be transported from Barra and South Uist to the mainland in time to get to the fish markets. Chris Bevan, Circo's freight manager for Northlink Ferries, said, Peaks in freight demand, particularly in the autumn, when we experience large volume of livestock traffic in common with our regular JIT commitments, regularly result in us operating a third freighter. This is, of course, dependent on charter market availability. The planned freighter replacement programme takes account of projected market growth and has been constructed with input from key haulier customers. A Transport Scotland spokesperson said, Since 2007, we have invested more than £2 billion in the Clyde and Hebrides ferry services, Northern Ireland's ferry services and ferry infrastructure. It said it is also developing a revised stakeholder strategy. The spokesperson also said, We acknowledge customers' frustrations during periods of disruption and remain committed to supporting vital lifeline services. We fully recognise the key role ferry services play in supporting the economic, social and cultural development of island and remote mainland communities. Transport Scotland is currently working with CalMac, CMAL and others to develop investment programmes for major vessels and small vessels. This work will look to deliver improvements, building on the substantial investment which has been made across these services in recent years. The investment programme for the next five years was set out in the Scottish Government's Infrastructure Investment Plan and is supported by a commitment of at least £580 million. We are developing an island's connectivity plan as the replacement to the previous ferries plan 
2022, following the publication of the National Transport Strategy and the National Islands Plan. This article is by Brian Donnelly. The Herald, Friday the 21st of May 2021. News. Glasgow Coronavirus. Business hammer below. This article is by Brian Donnelly. Businesses are deeply disappointed and disillusioned over the latest lockdown move for Glasgow, a Scottish business leader has said. Glasgow is the only part of Scotland to remain at a higher tier of coronavirus restrictions after Nicola Sturgeon announced the Moray Council area will drop to level two. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon said Glasgow will remain at level three for a further week before review. She said improvements following measures brought in to tackle an outbreak in Moray mean it can drop to level two from midnight on Friday. East Renfrewshire, which has a higher seven-day average rate of cases per 100,000 people at 118.3 than Glasgow, will remain in level two. Liz Cameron, Chief Executive of the Scottish Chambers of Commerce, said Today's announcement will bring a mixture of relief and anxiety. Whilst more businesses in Moray will now be able to open from midnight tonight and East Renfrewshire businesses will not have to close again, Glasgow businesses remain under strict trading and travel restrictions. The business community in Glasgow were handed a hammer blow last week and are deeply disappointed and disillusioned that more businesses could now reach crisis point as a result of these extended restrictions. The absolute priority must be to focus on managing these local outbreaks quickly to enable Scotland's most populated city to open up in line with the rest of the country. Businesses have invested heavily in COVID safe measures and equipment and want a fair opportunity to trade. They have created safe environments and need time to plan and rebuild confidence. To support restart efforts, we urge the Scottish Government to accelerate and expand the vaccination programme to as many people as possible, particularly in hotspot areas. The Scottish Government must ensure that adequate and targeted financial compensation is provided quickly. We also urge the UK Government to accept these outbreaks as special cases and be flexible with furlough criteria for businesses who have recruited new staff or who have brought back their employees. They should be able to use the furlough scheme to protect jobs. Businesses in Glasgow have been left intensely frustrated after the city was left stuck in level 3 coronavirus restrictions today, the Federation of Small Businesses in Scotland said. This article is by Brian Donnelly. The Herald, Friday the 21st of May, 2021. News. Salmond warns independence gradually slipping off the political agenda. This article is by Alistair Grant. Alex Salmond has warned independence is gradually slipping off the political agenda just weeks after the Holyrood election. The former First Minister and leader of the Alaba party said London has never been weaker and Scotland has never been stronger in political terms, but the chance to act on this may be missed. He made the comments in an update to Alaba members as he said the party's membership now sits at more than 5,500. 
Alaba failed to, to win any seats at the Holyrood election and secured just 1.7% of the regional vote. Mr Salmon said, It is only two weeks since the Scottish election, and yet the constitutional issue is already gradually slipping off the political agenda. Independence should be right up there, first and foremost, in terms of dealing with the pandemic, in terms of recovery and economic recovery from it. We should be talking about the constitutional question in Scotland. We should be forcing the issue because London has never been weaker and Scotland has never been stronger in political terms. But if we allow it to slip off the political agenda, to allow the Johnson government to regain its political balance, then the chance may be missed and may never come again. An absolute majority of the Scottish electorate, two weeks ago in the Scottish elections, voted for parties committed to Scottish independence, a mandate that is unarguable, but one that has to be used because mandates that are not used can sometimes be lost. This article is by Alistair Grant. Friday the 21st of May 2021, the Herald Scotland Sports Section. FA Cup winner Brendan Rodgers advising Hibernian manager Jack Ross ahead of Scottish Cup final. Jack Ross has revealed that Cup final specialist Brendan Rodgers has been offering him expert advice in the build-up to Hibernian's meeting with St Johnston and the Scottish Cup decider at Hampden tomorrow. Rogers struck up a friendship with Ross during his trophy-laden spell in charge of Celtic after being impressed by the football his counterpart's second-tier St Mirrenside produced in a cup match at Parkhead in 2017. The Hibs manager sent the Northern Irishman his congratulations after his Leicester City team beat Chelsea 1-0 at Hampden on Saturday night to win the FA Cup for the first time in their history. The 48-year-old has now won all seven finals he has been involved in. The 2011 Championship Playoff Final, the 2016, 2017 and 2018 Scottish League Cup Finals and the 2017 and 2018 Scottish Cup Finals were the others. And Rogers has responded by offering Ross whose Sunderland side lost the Checker Trade Trophy and League One playoff finals at Wembley within the space of two months in 2019, his encouragement and guidance. I had a few texts with him after the game, said Ross. I just offered my congratulations and we had a couple of messages about this weekend's game. He's proven himself to be an absolutely outstanding coach and manager, not just with what he's achieved in Scotland with Celtic, but with what he's gone on to do with Leicester. I was delighted for him, personally, at the weekend. I think you saw how much it meant to him. Hopefully I can experience that same type of feeling at the weekend. Asked about the content of the messages, Ross said, I just gave him one on the day of the game. And then the other messages were all about the cup final and how to win them, because he is good at that. Meanwhile, Ross has predicted that St Johnston's coronavirus disrupted preparations for the final could help to bring 
Callum Davidson's players closer together and make the Betfred Cup winners even more formidable opponents. A Covid outbreak at the Perth club this month has left Davidson without several key players in the last three games, including the semi-final win over St Mirren. And the former Scottish international has admitted he is facing difficult selection decisions. First of all, there's a well-being aspect of it, said Ross. We would hope none of their players have been affected too badly by the virus in terms of their health and well-being. Then, on the professional side, the football side. I haven't paid too much attention to the specifics. It's a bit like conjecture about injuries. So we've not paid too much attention to it. Our whole focus has been on preparing us in the best possible way for the game. In some ways, I'm sure Callum may use it as something to galvanise their group because they'll feel they've had a challenging couple of weeks. Ross will have Jamie Murphy, the Rangers loanee, available for the final, but will still be without Chris Cadden. Friday the 21st of May 2021, the Herald Scotland Sports Section. Shelley Kerr, Steve Clark chooses his squad wisely with Chelsea's Billy Gilmore an easy pick. I remember the first time I saw Billy Gilmore play. He was only about 15 at the time, but he was playing an age group up for Rangers under 20s against Aberdeen at Fourth Bank. I didn't know who he was beforehand as I was just there observing, but I thought he was incredible that night, even though he was a lot younger than most of the players on the field. Even at that age, you could say he had something special about him. I was so impressed, not just with his quality on the ball, but his movement off the ball as well. That's how I like to study players. Quite often in a game, they don't get a lot of time or touches on the ball, so it's often about what they're doing the rest of the time. And his movement off the ball was terrific. From a young age, he was showing that level of football intelligence, so it's no surprise he's where he is at now. He's achieved so much in the subsequent years, culminating in his breakthrough into the first team squad at Chelsea. He's not always had a lot of minutes on the pitch, but he's in an environment where he's playing and training with some of the best players in the world and that can only enhance his football attributes no end. People might have been surprised to see him, and also Nathan Patterson and David Tumble, included in Steve Clark's squad for the Euros, given they've not been capped yet. But I wrote in the column recently that I hoped Steve would use the extra three places available, with squad size being extended to 26, to give some of the younger ones a chance so I'm delighted he has done that. The response from the fans has been favourable too, as people always want to see young talent getting a chance, if they're good enough, as these three clearly are. We were all excited when we qualified last year, and seeing the squad named with players of that calibre, it just gives everyone an extra buzz again.
from Gilmore and Patterson to have both come through the performance skills route is also a vindication of that system as well. Both of them are still just 19 and Turnbull is only 21, even though it feels like he's been around for a lot longer given how much football he has already played in his career. The hope is that Scotland will go on to qualify regularly for major tournaments, in which case this will be great experience for them. But I think there is a chance some, if not all of them, may end up making their mark this summer. I know from experience that once you enter that tournament environment, things can quickly change and the best laid plans can often go out the window. A player may get injured and all of a sudden you're calling on the services of others that, as a manager, you maybe hadn't planned to use. And should that scenario arise, I've no doubt that youthful trio won't let their country down. Sometimes as a manager, you often have an idea but about a player, but it's only once you see them up close in training that you realise just what they are capable of. Steve will no doubt have felt a sense of release to have named his squad and got that out of the way, as it's something that weighs heavily on a manager's mind until it's announced. It's a strong group and one that gives you confidence as the tournament creeps ever closer. From a personal point of view, I'd have maybe taken an extra striker and one fewer defender, but Steve and his staff will have agonised over this for weeks and months, so you have to respect that decision. It will be tough for some of those who haven't made it, like Lee Griffiths, Liam Palmer and Lawrence Shankland, who would have been hoping for a call. There was added hype around this one, as it's been so long since the men's team have qualified, and everyone would have wanted to have been part of it, especially with two games at Hamden and the big one away to England at Wembley. That's always a tough conversation for any manager to have. Those players will be devastated at having missed out, and it might take some time for them to get over it. And then you have the scenario as a manager when, in the next campaign, you might have to go back and ask them to play for you again. I don't envy Steve on that one. For the lucky ones who have been selected, there will be a sense of relief and the excitement will start to build the closer the tournament gets. If they've not finished the season already, the players will look to come through the remaining club games unscathed and they can turn their attention to the friendlies against the Netherlands and Luxembourg to see if they can push their way into the manager's plans for that opener against the Czechs on June the 14th. It's going to be a competitive environment in training, and that can only help make sure everyone is at their sharpest going into such an important tournament. Friday the 21st of May 2021, the Herald Scotland Sports Section. Ali McCoist admits Old Firm Derbies and Rangers Aberdeen clashes have suffered this season. Ali McCoist expects that the presence of fans inside Hamden at this summer's European Championships will provide a welcome boost 
to, to Steve Clark's players, as well as lifting the spirits of supporters who have been locked out of stadiums for so long. Barring a couple of test events and the playoff finals, fans haven't been able to attend games since March of last year. Around 12,000 will be allowed into the National Stadium for the Euros next month and McCoist reckons the Tartan Army will be a welcome sight. In his job as a pundit and co-commentator, the Rangers legend has taken in his fair share of matches in empty stadiums over the last year or so. But it is the showpiece occasions in Scotland, he insists, where the fans' absence is truly felt. That's a boost for everybody, really, McCoy said of the return of supporters. I've been doing a lot of games this season, but it's the old firm games and the Rangers-Aberdeen games where I've thought to myself, it's just not the same. I've been to a few games down south and clearly you miss the fans, but it's those types of games that I've thought, dear me. We haven't been at a tournament since France in 98 and the fans deserve it. They'll be salivating at the prospect of getting back in and cheering on Scotland at a major tournament. It's a win-win situation. A second group stage fixture against England at Wembley provides a particularly mouth-watering clash for fans to look forward to. McCoist admits that the prospect of going up against the old enemy and leaving them with a bloody nose in their own back garden is a daunting one, but it is one he refused to rule out entirely. They've got some great players, he said. They're probably as strong as I can remember in a long, long time, particularly in the forward areas and in the midfield. There'll be a lot of people's favourites for the tournament, but we do a lot of our best work when we're under the cosh. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 21st of May 2021. Arts and Entertainments. The desk is a chaos of notebooks and a mug that says, What would Karen Perry do? How Val McDermott writes. By Herald Scotland. Val McDermott grew up in Kirkcaldy, Fife and worked as a newspaper journalist before emerging as one of the world's most respected crime writers. Her characters, including DCI Karen Perry and psychologist Tony Hill, are household names thanks to her award-winning novels and the TV drama adaptation, Wire in the Blood. Her latest book, Resistance, co-authored with Catherine Briggs, is a dark, gritty graphic novel about a mystery disease running out of control, adapted from McDermott's 2017 radio drama of the same name. Where do you write? I have an office in my home which looks out on my steeply terraced garden, so all I see when I turn my head is a green space. The bookshelves that line the walls contain part of my archive, as well as reference books in the to-be-read wall. The desk is a chaos of notebooks, books, scribbled notes and a coffee mug that says, what would Karen Perry do? I have a slight obsession with blackwing pencils, so I also have a couple of pencil jars with an assortment of them. There's a print of a Stephen Conroy painting, The Healing of a Lunatic Boy, which I've had in my office walls since 1987. Describe your working day. I write my books between January and March, stroke April. I'm usually at my desk around 10 with my second cup of coffee. I write in roughly 20 minute bursts, interspersing those frenzies with email, Twitter, a walk round the block, a bit of gaming or cooking. 
I finish for the day around 7pm, though when the deadline looms I occasionally go back for a couple of hours after dinner. Any rituals? I always have music on when I'm working. Anything without comprehensible lyrics. It blocks out anything disruptive. Do the techniques you learned as a newspaper journalist serve you as a novelist? I took two things from journalism. One is not to be precious about waiting for the muse to strike. Writing is a job. I may not have written great prose today, but I can go back and make it better. If I've written nothing, there's nothing to improve. The other is the huge database of people I encountered in the course of my work, from the Prince of Wales to the bereft and homeless. I have a library of their faces, their mannerisms and their speech that I can still draw on. Do you pre-plan? I used to plan in great detail because I thought plotting was my weakest skill. That stopped working for me very suddenly and scarily, but I discovered that I didn't need to work everything out in advance. Now I know the basic story arc and two or three crucial turning points. Then I just start at the beginning and get stuck in. Have your working methods changed over the years? Only in a practical sense. I wrote my first novel with a fountain pen and foolscap because I thought that's what novelists were supposed to do. By the second I graduated to an Amstrad word processor. Now I use a Mac. Resistance was co-authored with Catherine Briggs. How did that work? This is the first time I've worked with an illustrator in a graphic novel. With my publisher, we chose Catherine because we liked the range of her sample work. The two of us met up in Dundee, where she was living, and talked about the possible styles of illustrations she might use. Then she sent me some sample pages, and I loved how she'd adopted various graphic styles to carry particular elements of the story, because she was working from a radio script, without all the descriptive elements of a novel. I think it gave her more freedom to be expressive and imaginative. In essence, she used the dialogue of the script for the speech and captions of the adaptation. How did having researched and written the radio serial affect you living through the COVID-19 pandemic? I knew enough from my research to be very afraid and to find myself frequently enraged at the cavalier attitudes of Westminster politicians with their tendency to put their friends' interests ahead of the science. Did lockdown affect your writing life? There's no doubt I wrote more slowly in lockdown, maybe about three quarters of my usual speed. Probably because I spent a lot more time surfing the web to see what the latest news was. Shifting to online events was challenging too. It takes a lot more energy to do an event when there is no audience feeding their reactions back to you. The first time I paused for the laugh and nothing happened was terrifying. I was also very conscious that, since more people could see my events online, I was very quickly going to run out of fresh things to say but I pivoted very quickly to digital platforms. The launch event of Imagine a Country, the book of hope and imagination I co-edited with Joe Sharp, was one of the first casualties of lockdown. The launch was programmed during I Write 2020, which was cancelled after day one due to the pandemic. We very quickly put together a YouTube version of the I Write event we'd been planning and managed to get it online at the time it would have been gone ahead. We became more proficient with the form, even branching out into a series of mad cookery videos, cooking the books, recipes from the fiction kitchen. They're still out there on YouTube and thousands of people have enjoyed them, so the online option has provided us with interesting new opportunities. When do you clock off? When I'm working in a book, weekends cease to exist. I suppose I clock off around the end of April. Do you take a break after finishing a book? When I finish a novel, I'm usually already well on the way to the next book. So I'll be doing background reading, a lot of walking and thinking, some of it out loud, maybe visiting locations I want to use, and getting to know the characters whose story it will be. I'll be catching up on my leisure reading too, doing some gaming, making music. 
The listening of restrictions to allow us to meet up with friends has been an absolute joy. Now I'm looking forward to sitting round the kitchen table, eating and drinking and talking the night away. What are you working on now? I've just finished this year's novel, 1979, which will be out in August. I'm doing the research for the next one, 1989, and I'm following the production of two TV series, Tracy's Two and Karen Perry. So I'm reading a lot of scripts, and there are a few other bits and pieces to keep me out of trouble. Resistance, a graphic novel by Val McDermott and Catherine Briggs, is published by Welcome Collection, £18.99. By Herald Scotland. The Herald, Monday the 24th of May, 2021. News. CalMac confirms sixth delay over repair of its biggest vessel heralding Springbank holiday disruption. This article is by Martin Williams. Scotland's Lifeline ferry network faces longer disruption running into the Springbank holiday weekend after it emerged plans to have its largest vessel back in service have been put off for a sixth time. MV Loch Seaforth was taken off the Ullapool Stornoway route by state ferry operator Calmac a month ago to be taken into dry dock for major engine repairs. The publicly funded firm had initially said the eight-year-old vessel would be out of action until at least the end of April at the earliest, but has since kept putting that date back. After a series of schedule changes 10 days ago, Calmac said it was expected back by May the 28th at the earliest. Now, as Ireland start to open up to visitors with the easing of COVID-19 restrictions, the return of the vessel has been pushed back yet again to May the 31st at the earliest. Calmac says specialist engineers are currently rebuilding the six-year-old vessel's engine and that she should be able to leave wet dock in Greenock on May the 28th, once successful testing has been carried out. The vessel will then undergo the required 50-hour period of sea trials whilst in transit to Stornoway. Following the initial repair to the Loch Seaforth engine, damage to the crankshaft was identified during post-repair testing that required further action. Calmac say crankshaft bearings have now been disassembled and inspected and the damaged bearing has been replaced. Related damage has been repaired by polishing. The sump and oil system has also been cleaned and inspected. Calmac said that intrusive inspections have been conducted and no further damage has been found. The Herald revealed how the failure of Loch Seaforth resulted in cuts to other services across the ferry network as vessels relied on with other routes were shifted around to accommodate. Campaigners had described the situation as a national scandal and that those responsible should already have lost their jobs for the state of Scotland's ferries. It meant that the temporary shifting of ferries to cover for Loch Seaforth's loss will remain in place. That means MV Isle of Lewis, which was taken off its usual route between Castle Bay on the Isle of Barra and Oban in Argyll to support the Loch Seaforth run will remain. One of Scotland's busiest ferry services, the Ardrossan to Iron route, will continue to remain serviced by one vessel rather than two. 
According to the Arran Recovery Group, the shifting of the ferry for the start of the summer tourist season will cost the island more than £500,000 in lost business. The 38-year-old MV Isle of Arran, which normally runs on the Adrosson to Arran route and was taken off freight service duties on the Ullapool to Stornoway crossing because of stabiliser problems, resulting in a shutdown on services for over three days, has been operating on the more sheltered Isley run. There was criticism when it emerged that as Isle of Arran only had space for four lorries. The 36-year-old MV Hebridean Isles ended up replacing the Isle of Arran on the Stornoway crossing on Saturday, causing cancellations on its usual Kenna Craig to Isley. If the Loch Seaforth returns to action, the Isle of Arran will return to the Brodick-Ardrossan route, allowing a return to the two-vessel service on June the 3rd. On arrival at Stornoway, the Loch Seaforth will undertake further inspection. On arrival at Stornoway, the Loch Seaforth will undertake further inspection to ensure that no further issues have arisen from the sea trials, said Calmac. Until the Loch Seaforth is back in service, Existing temporary arrangements and timetables will remain in place, including the replacement freight service on Stornoway to Ullapool and the temporary timetable on Ardrossan to Brodick. Robbie Drummond, Managing Director of Calmac, said specialists are working throughout the day and night on the MV Lock Seaforth to ensure her safe return to Stornoway to Ullapool. This has been an extremely frustrating time for passengers and our staff and I am grateful to them all for their continued patience. The latest issue comes off the back of the country's ferry building fiasco at the now state-owned Ferguson Marine. The two lifeline ferries being built at Ferguson Marine, which were due to be in service in early 2018, are now up to nearly five years behind schedule and their cost is now over double the original £97 million contract. This article is by Martin Williams. The Herald, Monday the 24th of May 2021. News. Covid Scotland. Half of Glasgow Hydro vaccine appointments were no-shows over the weekend. This article is by Helen McArdle. Around half of people booked to get their COVID jag in Glasgow's main mass vaccination centre failed to turn up over the weekend, according to reports. BBC Scotland is reporting that a considerable number of people did not show up for appointments at the SAC Hydro on Saturday and Sunday. It is understood that this averaged out to be around half of all appointments being missed over the two days, with fewer than half of those appointments on Saturday arriving to be vaccinated. A little over half of those with appointments are said to have been vaccinated on Sunday. NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde said there had been an unusual number of cancellations and non-attendances, but did not provide specific figures. It said it is investigating possible reasons. The Hydro, which replaced the Louisa Jordan as the city's main vaccination hub in April, has a minimum capacity to vaccinate 4,000 people per day, but this can be ramped up to 10,000 per day. There are no published figures on rates of no-shows across Scotland or by local authority area. 
since Friday, a further 528 positive COVID cases have been detected in the Greater Glasgow and Clyde region. It is unclear why attendance should have fallen, but there have been recent reports of people cancelling appointments because they did not want to receive the AstraZeneca vaccine, which has been linked to rare blood clots. Guidance now recommends that people under 40 be given the Moderna or Pfizer vaccines instead because the risk of developing a blood clot, though extremely small, outweighed their probability of becoming seriously ill as a result of the coronavirus infection. Glasgow is currently the only area of Scotland still subjected to Level 3 COVID restrictions, which ban the serving of alcohol indoors or gatherings inside people's homes due to fears over the fast-spreading Indian variant believed to be driving a surge in cases in the south of the city. Glasgow's overall seven-day case rate is the highest in Scotland, at 136.8 per 100,000, up from 112.3 a week ago. Test positivity is currently 4.1%. Scottish Conservative Shadow Health Secretary and Glasgow MSP Annie Wells said... We know that vaccinations are our best route back to normality, so it is extremely concerning that so many people failed to turn up for their appointments. It is particularly worrying when the rollout has been ramped up in Glasgow due to the recent outbreak of cases in the city. The vaccination scheme has been an incredible success story across Scotland and the United Kingdom. However, SNP ministers must be as transparent as possible when serious issues like this occur. There could be a number of reasons as to why people didn't turn up for appointments, but unless SNP ministers are up front, then we won't know why slots were ultimately not taken up on the day. If there are any issues with people receiving their appointment letters on time, then the SNP ministers must give health boards the resources to ensure that people's details are fully up to date. That is even more important now as we encourage younger people to take up the vaccine and ensure we can safely ease restrictions in the coming weeks. Research from Public Health England released on Saturday reveals that both the Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccines are only 33% effective at preventing symptomatic infections caused by the Indian variant three weeks after the first dose. This compared with 50% effectiveness against the Kent variant. Protection rose to 88% with the Pfizer vaccine two weeks after the second dose in relation to the Indian variant and 60% two weeks after a second dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine. This was slightly lower compared to the protection against the Kent variant at 93% and 66% respectively with the Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccines. It is thought that the numbers could be lower for the AstraZeneca vaccine as in England it was primarily given to vulnerable elderly people in care homes whereas younger priority groups such as healthcare workers were more likely to have been given the Pfizer vaccine. Both vaccines are still expected to offer high protection against severe COVID disease, however, although data is still being gathered on this. In Scotland as a whole, around 41% of adults have had both vaccine doses so far, but this ranges from a high of 62.7% in the Western Isles 
to a low of 31.1% in Glasgow City. Health Secretary Hamza Yousaf said on Sunday that the Scottish Government will be closely monitoring any increases in intensive care admissions in the Glasgow area this week in order to decide whether restrictions could be lifted. As of today, there are 49 people in hospital in the Greater Glasgow and Clyde region with recently diagnosed COVID, up from 21 on Sunday, May the 16th and 41 on Friday. However, there are only six COVID patients in intensive care across Scotland as a whole, up from four on Friday. Recent admissions have largely involved patients aged 25 to 64, and those under 50 are much less likely to become seriously ill compared to elderly patients who are more likely to be fully vaccinated. In a statement, NHS GGC said, We want to thank everyone who has come forward for a vaccine so far. We've had incredible success to date and this is a testament to the hard work of all those staff from across NHS GGC who have been involved in the rollout of the programme. We have now vaccinated over 98% of people over the age of 50 with their first dose. We recognise that there was an unusual amount of cancellations and non-attendances for vaccinations at the Hydro over the weekend. We are looking into the details further to understand the reasons behind this. We strongly encourage everyone to take up the opportunity to be vaccinated once they are invited. This may mean that an increase in hospital admissions does not translate into increased pressure on ICU. This article is by Helen McCardle. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.